<clears throat> Let's go ahead and get started with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the day. Thank you for a place that we can gather together. Thank you for bringing us together here this evening, and I want to thank you also for all that's going on in the rest of the building and pray that the young people and the children that are being taught and in other places those are gathering for an hour of prayer, I just pray that you would watch and see us all, hear our prayers, and apply your word to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> um, last week, we, we ended up with the Nicene Creed that uh, came out of the Nicene Council. Um, and I passed that out to you, and we looked at some of the things that they were trying to um, respond to in that creed. And that was in three, <clears throat> 325, okay? Um, <clears throat> persecution had pretty well quit, and as far as officially. And so the church began to um, grow in influence um, pretty dramatically once persecution quit. And you're heading towards the tail end of the fourth century, the late 300s, and then on into um, the 400s. Now, I want to not really backtrack, but I want to look at <coughs> um, the doctrine of salvation and how it was viewed really from the apostles on. So I know we're, we're going back and kind of starting over, not starting over, but <clears throat> on a bit of a different subject because I want to lay the groundwork for the next big, and this is probably one of the, I don't know if I'd say it's the biggest, but maybe one of the biggest heresies that were, uh, was dealt with. But I think the fruits of it we still see clearly today. Um, but at any rate, <clears throat> regarding the core of Christianity, which is salvation, um, sin, we have to remember this, like medicine is disease-centered, the doctrine of salvation, redemption, is sin-centered. A, a reputable, um, careful doctor will, once he's diagnosed you, will sit down with you and explain the nature of the disease that you have. And he will show you why you have these particular symptoms, the symptoms that drove you to the doctor in the first place. Because you have this particular disease that these symptoms often indicate, <clears throat> here's why we are forced by the nature of the disease to treat it in a certain way, okay? Um, <clears throat> we really don't have total freedom in 
medicine or lots of areas. Well, I just want to I, I treat it this way. I want to do this, I want to do that. We don't have that kind of freedom. The nature of what we're dealing with determines the treatment, okay? Um, I mean, I, if, even if we're not talking about medicine, if you got termites in the, you know, floor joists, there are certain treatments that you have to apply and you don't have a whole range of options. You have to do this because of what you're dealing with. So the doctrine of sin is really foundational to the whole Christian religion. It is, it's critical. And being off there will then, of course, throw you off as far as the doctrine of salvation, what God proposes to do about it. Sin is what's wrecked everything, okay? So that's, God's focused on sin. <clears throat> Sounds negative. In the day we're in today, um, that's a horrible thing. Um, and I've been around long enough to see people try to come up with um, only, I mean, intentionally, only positive things to say about like even a statement of faith that of a denomination or a church. We believe such and such and such. Only put it in positive um, terms. Well, being involved in one of those once, I, you know, I, I, I mentioned, you know, I, I hate to break it to you, but maybe one of the Ten Commandments is positive, all the rest of them are negative. Don't do that. Okay, um, there's no way to be really positive about blasphemy and adultery and murder, but tell you don't do it. That's negative. Um, but the doctrine of sin, which is very clear in Scripture, there's really not been, other than some outliers, there's not been big argument about the doctrine of sin in the sense, in this sense. That the sinful problem, the nature of the whole sin problem, is it is double trouble. Okay, it is two pronged. There are two aspects. There are two kinds of sin. One is that which we inherited racially as children of Adam. In that we are, we have that in common with every other human being. And that sin is an infection. It's not an act. It's a condition. Um, it shows itself almost you know, very, very early in life as an inclination to self-centeredness, to um, rebel against authority, to push back against all boundaries. Um, and that's really the, the core of what happened in the Garden of Eden. God set some boundaries, and they, Eve and Adam decided on the devil's word that these boundaries were false boundaries, and the threats of what would happen were completely false, and so they, they broke down the wall. And we're still living with it today. Um, <clears throat> So everyone is born with an inclination to sin. Um, 
In Psalm 51, David describes it. He uses a word. He said, in sin did my mother conceive me and so forth. And he, he's talking about inherited inclination, inherited infection of sinfulness. Now, this is hair splitting, but it's really not hair splitting. People say, we're born, we're all born sinners. No, we're not. We're born sinful. Because we're sinful, we will inevitably become sinners. But that not until I am at the age of accountability, which varies from person to person, where I know something enough about the moral governor of the universe and what the oughts and the shouldn'ts and the shoulds that he's teaching me and telling me and then I willfully, knowingly choose to defy those words to me. Then we're introduced to the second kind of sin, which is sin of verb. It's an act. It's a deed. But <clears throat> it is uniquely personal. The first kind of sin is racial, global. Every single human's born with it. So that is... Um, there isn't, no one escapes that. But when I reach the age where I know, and God really only knows that, when, when we cross that threshold of really knowing the difference between moral right and wrong, and I'm really, I'm not talking either about, you know, I knew my mom told me not to drive the, ride my trike down too close to the sidewalk, to the street, but I did it anyway. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a sense of moral right and wrong, telling a lie, um, you know, things that are moral, okay? Um, <clears throat> and when we willfully commit those, then we become guilty, and that is the beginning of a spiritual separation from God. Now, the inclination that I'm born with, were it not for the grace of God, that would separate us from God too. But grace precedes, God has poured grace out, which is two things. One, it's unmerited favor. And two, another, uh, the other half of grace is enablement. It is power to obey God and to um, follow him, okay? Grace is mo way more than unmerited favor. It is that, of course. And that unmerited favor, for instance, in the case of a child born, though they're born with an inclination to sin and with an infection of uh, self-sovereignty in their hearts, nevertheless, they're innocent. That's why a child below that age of accountability who dies is covered by the atonement. They're, they'll go to heaven um, <clears throat> because they are rightly um, innocent. They're not pure because they were born with depravity, but they're innocent, thus not separated from God. Um, secondly, that inclination doesn't the inclination until it's acted upon it doesn't separate me from God either 
because he, I inherited it. It isn't something I did. The only thing that gets me in trouble with God is willful transgression of the known will of God. Now, that inclination of my heart will come into play later. But the early church um, never deviated. There was very little, except again, some wackos that were on the fringes. Um, they believed we had a twofold problem. They were, everyone was born um, with an inclination to sin and then engaged in a career of sinning themselves when they reached that age. And so we had both an issue of pollution and of guilt. Does that make sense? The early church then was real solid on that. And it was no deviation uh, to speak of. And they, in response to that, it was assumed. It was, how can I, it just was not really challenged, okay, that God also had a double cure for the double problem. One was forgiveness for the sinner. Two, cleansing for the sinful. Another thing that was very understood, no debate, nobody even thought about it, I don't think, argued about it, was that after conversion, after being born again, there still remained, though subdued and not dominant, there still remained in the heart even of the believer a condition prompting James to label it double-mindedness, two souls. That meaning Christ is in my heart and I'm walking with him, but the remains of that inherited inclination that I was born with are still there. It's subdued. The grace of God enables me to um, push back against it. I do not need to um, fall to it and obey its impulses, but I can't shut the impulses up. Okay? So we are, now this is of course not clear back to the early, early church, but you go clear back to John Bunyan, the 1600s, writing Pilgrim's Pro Progress. He talks about Mr. Facing, uh, Mr. Facing both ways. That's double-minded. Um, <clears throat> the disciples were double-minded. The Israelites coming out of Egypt were double-minded. Um, and James says to those that are sinners, he said, cleanse your hands, be forgiven, stop it by the grace of God. Two, but he said to those that are double-minded, that's a different category with a different need requiring a different treatment. Cleanse your hands or purify, said your, your hearts, you double-minded. Okay? The early church never deviated on that. That we need both to be born again and to be baptized with the Spirit, to receive the fullness of the Spirit. Now, here's what happened though. Um, I, you know, most stuff starts out, I think, well-meaning. Jesus gave two sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper. 
<clears throat> and I believe, and I think a lot of people would agree, some don't, but I agree that, or, or I believe that those two sacraments are replacements or the fulfillment, if you want to call it, of the signs of the covenant in the Old Testament, the Jews, circumcision and um, the Passover. Those were two things. There were plenty of things that God really laid, <laughs> laid the law down on them. But those were two things. He said, I'll cut your soul off. You're cut off from the people of God if you didn't follow through on those. Okay, So the New Testament church, of course, had baptism, but they started to add some things. I think the meaning was well and all this. But here's what it still bears out that the New Testament church believed that there were two distinct works of God to deal with the two distinct types of sin that have infected the human race. One was baptism, water baptism. Okay, and it was pretty, <clears throat> pretty um, involved. A person that um, now this this is a it was okay in a sense, maybe, but it kind of got off. They began to feel that <clears throat> conversion, being born of the Spirit, took place. And, and I know this is, sounds hair-splitting. It took place simultaneously with being baptized, okay? Now, that's the, that, that was after 150 to 200 years, okay? That's not the same as what we call today baptismal regeneration, meaning the baptism, the act of baptism is what saves you. They didn't mean that, but they opened the door to it by saying that your conversion by faith occurs as you're baptized. It's, you can see how short, it isn't even a leap, it's just a half step to the application of water is what saves you, okay? So, I don't know why they did that, but at any rate, <clears throat> a lot of ritual around it. Um, they would, by the 150s to 200, there was a prayer. You were baptized with holy water. I mean, it was water that was like consecrated. They would pray, would this water be effective in washing away sin? So you can see where they're just nibbling at the edge of the water and the act and the symbol and the ritual itself saves you, okay? Um, <clears throat> then, they would, early on, they pretty well practiced immersion. Um, there were some, though, that early on practiced what they called effusion, but that's just, that's pouring. And they, they poured, I, I've seen a picture, real, a mosaic of a person standing in water, okay, some kind of a pool, and then a, an official, a bishop, pouring a hole like a big vase, big jug, pouring it onto them while they stood in the water, okay? Now, the thought there is, and there was a reason they did that. They picked up and paid attention to the use of the word 
pouring when speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Jesus, you know, and, and Paul and the different apostles talking about the Spirit being poured out. The Old Testament prophecies, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. You young women will see visions and all this. Um, <clears throat> so the, the pouring out of the water, baptismal water, was meant as two things. A ritual, a symbol of the washing that was happening to your soul, washing from the guilt of sins. But second, it was meant to foreshadow and anticipate the pouring of the Spirit on you to deal with the inherited inclination that you were born with, okay? Now, it wasn't too long, and they started, then they started more specifically addressing the business of the fullness of the Spirit that we need to receive subsequent to being converted, being born again. And they started adding another whole, not separate time-wise, but um, sort of separate. You would be baptized. Um, after you were baptized, you put on a new robe. You were given a special baptismal robe <clears throat> that was white, symbolizing you're, a, you're washed now. You dried off and whatever, and then you went into a second ritual which involved oil. Now oil, of course, is and was in their understanding a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So there was a, they still called the whole ritual baptism, but they would anoint you with oil, lay hands on you and pray for you to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That would be 10 minutes, I don't know, after you were baptized for forgiveness of sins and being converted, okay? Now that tradition, somewhat different, but that tradition has stayed with us um, in many branches of Christianity today. Um, though, now, the Eastern Orthodox to this day do water baptism followed by anointing with oil and sometimes, and they do all this to an infant, and sometimes they'll give an infant, which makes no sense, first communion. But, I mean, it's, it's not, they can't, they can't drink or chew, but, you know, they will put some little tiny portion of bread soaked with um, wine, you know, in their mouth so that they can say they had first communion. Um, but Eastern Orthodox still keep the baptiz water baptism and anointing with oil, um, pretty much in the same setting, okay? Which is still reminiscent of, it takes, God requires two different kinds of works, forgiveness here and cleansing here and fullness of the Holy Spirit. At least the two-ness, the distinctness is retained. Even though it's lost anything, it's now just wooden, okay? Now, Protestant and Catholic, which would be the Western Church, has kept that, but it's long separated generally by years. 
you're baptized as an infant in water, and then at confirmation, whatever, usually that's preceded by catechism, where you're taught the basics of the faith and so forth. And then, um, by the way, clear back then, the oil, they would anoint you with oil, and they would make the sign of the cross with the oil on your forehead, okay? That's ancient. So today, in, well, there's a lot of denominations that, that have practiced confirmation, First Communion, and all those kinds of things. Um, Anglican, you know, Church of England, which is Episcopals in the United States, Roman Catholic, Lutherans. What about Presbyterians? Laura, you, you kind of grew, well, you were in the Protestant, or Presbyterian for a while. Did Presbyterians have confirmation? I know the Lutherans do. Anybody know? I think the Methodists will semi-have it. it it's, I don't know if they actually call it confirmation, but at any rate, it's a confirmation. Now, if you read the, the doctrine, uh, read confirmation rituals and what they mean, especially in the Catholic Church, it's, it's as plain as day. This is when you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's when you're supposed to. So it's the same as Pentecost occurred in the early church. is when you have completed catechism and you um, are confirmed. Now, when you're confirmed, and it's usually like 12 or somewhere in there, the only person that can do it, a local parish priest, whether it's Lutheran, Catholic, or whoever, can't do it. It has to be the bishop. The bishop then confirms you and with oil makes the sign of the cross in your forehead. Um, when, our, when our son Stephen was <clears throat> in graduate school at Notre Dame, you know, he, he took us into the basilica there. And um, large, real tall um, wooden base and then a glassed in, locked, but glassed, um, you know, four-sided glass kind of a cabinet right in the center of the aisle had a huge, you know, just ornate, cut, you know, crystal pitcher of water and a matching cut crystal pitcher of oil for those two different rituals, okay? Um, <clears throat> now, the reason that the bishop is the only one that can confirm is go, anybody... This is really extra credit here. Anybody know why in the Catholic Church and in the Lutherans, churches that are more sacramental, uh, why is it that only the bishop can anoint with oil and, quote, confirm you? Anybody have any idea? Nobody knows? Well, it goes. Yeah, go ahead, Floyd. Yeah, but it does go back, at least on the surface. It goes back to Acts 8. Um, because in Acts 8, the gospel spread after the persecution of Stephen um, in Acts 6 and 7. Um, 
the gospel spread to the Samaritans. Now that was north, that was the former northern tr 10 tribes of Israel, which were now co-mingled with other nations, and they were considered just mongrels to the true Jews down in Judea and J Jerusalem. So um, at any rate, though, the Samaritans believed at the preaching of Philip. Okay, now, Philip, there, were, there was a, f a disciple who was Philip, apostle, and there was a deacon who was Philip. This had to be the deacon, Philip, okay? Here's why. He went and preached, and I don't completely understand some of this, but anyway, he went and preached, and it says the whole region turned to God. Many people were converted, and they were baptized. I'm assuming that Philip did the baptizing. That meant he was considered, um, what, qualified, ordained, or whatever, to administer the sacraments, okay? I don't know who else would have baptized him. Um, but anyway, then it says of all these people that believed and were baptized, it says in Acts 8, but the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon any of them. They were just, and it doesn't mean a diminished baptism, they were just baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay? At hearing that, the disciples, the whole council of the apostles in Jerusalem, sent uh, Peter and John down to Samaria so that for the purpose of, it says, laying hands upon them and praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And when Peter and John laid hands on the believers, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Simon the magician saw that happen, wanted that power, offered the money if they would give him the power to do that. Um, and of course, Peter denounced him. But the point then is, only the apostles apparently had the power, the original apostles, to, if you want to use the term, confer the Holy Spirit or lay hands on people and pray that the Holy Spirit would be given to them in, in Pentecost fullness, okay? That tradition then with real early, early Christian down through Catholicism especially, that I mentioned to you, apostolic succession, where you could trace back, theoretically, clear back to the apostles, um, your ordination, okay? Um, so that's the reason in the churches, Lutheran, Catholic, whoever, who have confirmation that it can only be done by a bishop because he is a direct descendant spiritually and ordination-wise of Trace and clear back to the apostles, okay? That's the theory, anyway, that no one else can do it. Now, <clears throat> having said all this, it kind of gives us, maybe, a background here for um, this um, really severe heresy that came along. Um, there's two guys, two names I want to give you here. One is a guy named <clears throat> Pelagius. Um, P-E-L 
A-G, I think it's I-U-S, Pelagius, okay? Pelagius and then Augustine. Augustine was born 354, died in 430. Um, can't remember when Pelagius' years were sort of similar. The two of those people were, li were living at the same time. Um, mortal enemies, um, doctrinally. <clears throat> Sometime in the um, early 400s, this guy Pelagius shows up in Rome. He is a um, monk from Britain, okay? Um, you know, the Romans, of course, had, had settled England, or what today is Britain. And so the missionaries went there, and there was a well-established, you know, Christian presence there. And so Pelagius, being uh, this British monk, he travels to Rome, as everybody was supposed to, um, and he had some brand new ideas that he was teaching and preaching and trying to get people to buy into it. <clears throat> and they were totally heretical. Here were, let me give you, there's at least, we can probably sum it up, five, five main points to what um, Pelagius taught. Um, one, we can call it, I think, let's call it spiritual, spiritual neutrality of Adam. Now, I'll explain what I mean. The Bible can't be plainer. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, so was Eve. And Adam, if he's in the image and likeness of God, then he was holy. He was righteous. Okay? Um, Pelagius denied that. He said he was neither good nor bad. He was inclined neither way. He was neutral. He had a free will that he was capable of um, operating. And his spiritual condition and uh, inclination direction would be determined by the choices he made with that free will, okay? So he was not inclined to righteousness or to evil, okay? Um, where he got that, who, you know, who knows? But at any rate. <clears throat> so the second thing then, he taught that when Adam exercised his will to disobey God, it only affected Adam. It didn't affect anybody else. There's no such thing as Adam passing on to his posterity, which would be us, a fallen nature, a sinful nature, okay? Um, so then that really point two is he denied original sin. He denied that the humans are born with an inclination in either direction. So we could say, really, a third main point is that all infants nowadays are, they're born into the world the same as Adam was, who was neither inclined to evil or to righteousness, but he just had a free will. 
Okay? Um, so he denies then um, human fallenness, denies inherited depravity. The fourth main doctrine then was it's a humanistic salvation, meaning um, it's all based on our choice. And he did not make much of even a grace-aided choice. We just had the power, and so whichever way you choose, that's what you are, and that's how you live, okay? Now, um, it means that theoretically, a person can never sin. Doesn't, they don't have to because they have a free will. They're not inclined. They don't have an underlying undertow to rebel against God and go their own way. So in theory, a person, an infant, can come into this world and make right choices as soon as they know to make choices. And those choices being correct, they don't sow. They never sin. They don't need a Savior. We don't need Jesus. For those who might manage to make right choices forever. Okay? So it's a completely, um, I am saved by my choosing. I am not saved by um, faith clinging to a Redeemer that I, because I'm helpless. That theory, all of the helplessness of the sinner is out the window. Okay? So you can see um, that this was way out of the ballpark, okay? And maybe, maybe another point that is, I don't understand where he came up with or why, but the, the mortality of the human race, meaning the, the race would have died if there wouldn't have been any sin. We're not, we don't, we're not dying because of sin. God, I guess, God just decided that he'd limit the amount of time we live. And so, you know, but it's, it's, this is nuts. Now, a lot of it, most when you talk about Pelagianism, you don't really talk about some of these peripheral doctrines as much as the core one is he denies original sin. He denies um, being born, that the whole human race is born um, inclined towards evil and like the old creeds, um, the English Church of England, um, that we are um, born um, into sin, we and we are inclined to evil continually, and only evil continually. Not ever we're, we're inclined solely in one direction. Okay, which is a paraphrase of what God told Noah when He got him off of the ark. Basically, what Noah was saying when, or what God was saying to Noah when the ark finally rested on top of Mount Ararat and it dried up enough that they got off, God was basically saying right there at the end of that catastrophic destruction of the whole of the human race, but for a people because of their wickedness, he was basically saying, we're not done with this. This will be back. Because he said, the imagination of man's heart is evil only 
continually from his youth. And the word youth in there is really infancy. So God is saying, we, didn't, we just stopped a certain level of rot in the human race in the world, but it's coming back. Why? Because a whole new generation's about to come and populate the earth again, and they got the same heart as people who we just got done drowning. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so to deny that is fundamentally denying Scripture. Okay? Now, um, the reason I gave you all the earlier stuff about how everybody grieved, uh, believed that we are, I forgot, I better throw this in too, um, because it's important. The early church not only believed that there's forgiveness for sins, there's cleansing of that inclination in our heart so you can have a pure heart, okay? They also were very stringent and veered too far the other direction. But the idea that a Christian, some said a Christian, after conversion and receiving those rituals in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, could not sin. And I don't mean not able to sin, but better not. If they did, there was no way back for them. Now that is nuts. Um, but again, remember the context they're dealing with. A lot of people were pressed to uh, recant their faith in Jesus and, and worship the emperor and all that kind of stuff. So there was a strong party that believed you couldn't be forgiven. And then a few said, well, I've mentioned this before. A few can, you, you got one. You got one post-baptismal sin. Better make it good because it's the only one you got that you can be forgiven. Second one, you're done. You're, you're just done, okay? That's totally unbiblical, but it does tell you the expectation of the church was you quit the sin business when you get right with God. The notion today that there, you can't hardly tell any difference between a professing Christian and the world was totally foreign to the early church. Yes, they went too far in one direction, but there was no such thing as uh, we, we sin words ought need all times to make a difference. Second, the error, it, it still was an error, however, it demonstrates a point. The error about no way back was, is clear that there wasn't anybody. And I have heard modern day and read modern day people who believe in the doctrine that once you're saved, you can never be lost, ever. I've heard them and read them admit, which they got to, that the whole of the early church never heard of, thought of, taught at all anything called unconditional eternal security. They didn't even think about it. Someone, you would think, especially in the heat of this only no sin or only one sin after you've been baptized and you're a goner, you'd think somebody would step forward and say, hey, it's only been 50 years since St. John died. He used to preach that once you're saved, you're always saved. What are you talking about? Nobody did that because nobody ever taught that. 
Yes, they erred. But at least it proved no one thought that it was impossible to fall away from faith. Okay? All the exhortations were to endure, to endure, be faithful, go through hard times, don't quit. Now, <clears throat> um, it's into that kind of atmosphere that Pelagius comes and says, you're not even born with inclination to sin. And you don't, fundamentally, you can just make the right choices and you're fine all your life. Well, that obviously caused an uproar. The main guy that stood up against him was uh, from North Africa at the time, near Carthage, and that was, today we call him St. Augustine. Um, and they, of course, I don't know if they ever met, but at least, you know, the, mainly you fought back and forth by letters and written sermons and things like that. Now, Augustine was, he thought, and he did some early writing along the lines I've been just describing. You can be fully sanctified in this life. We can live above the willful, I'm not talking about mistakes, but the practice of willful sin as righteous Christians, the grace of God strong enough to do that. We're unable to do that. So that, Augustine was in that stream, okay? Along comes Pelagius. I think Pelagius and the Pelagian heresy is a really good illustration which the world's full of. We always have to be careful that we don't overreact even to a very serious error and end up backing into our own ditch of another error, okay? I think that occurred here. Um, Augustine rightly took on Pelagius head on, but kind of went too far in refuting the idea that we are, Pelagius' idea, that we're not born sinful. In, in August, and I'm simplifying this, I know. If there were some historical theologian here, my son has a doctorate in his patristics, which is early church fathers. Hopefully, you know, he wouldn't cringe at what I'm saying, but I'm, I gotta, you know, condense it. Um, Augustine went overboard against the notion that you're not depraved and taught that you are so depraved that there is nothing you can do even in responding to God. You are so depraved, so powerless, so um, sinful that salvation shifted in Augustine's thinking from being a divine human cooperation where God gives us grace, but we respond to that grace, he extends his hand to us, and we, through his grace, extend our hand to him. And so, synergism, I mentioned that, I think, Sunday, we, where we, it's divine human cooperation. It became salvation morphed in this whole big argument in the hands of Augustine to um, monergism, which means salvation is only of God. You literally do not participate in it. 
you might think you are, but any, any participation that you think you're having in salvation is completely uh, determined, not influenced, determined by God before the foundation of the earth. Okay? So there's a, there's a huge, wonderful, I guess you'd say wrong, but a really good logical uh, uh, logic to this teaching of Augustine. He abandoned the teaching that you could be, um, they used the word perfect, and it didn't mean, I mean, it's Christian perfection. It's loving the Lord with your whole heart, your neighbor as yourself. He abandoned the notion that you could be cleansed from inherited sin because he made it so bad. And he also um, was heavily influenced by Plato, which was the source of some of Gnosticism and dualism, which taught that humanity is evil itself. He mingled sin into your body to where you can't be pure as long as you're human. So then the savior I have from sin is not Christ, but death. Lay aside this body, and now I'm, now I'm pure. So he really got dug in in trying to refute Pelagius and created some real problems there. And both Pelagianism and Augustinianism, which a thousand years later, Augustinianism was refined and kind of codified by Calvin and John Calvin and some of the reformers um, and it's with us today now um, let me just um, I almost have to jump ahead to because it's easier to remember and I can't finish it tonight but I'll at least give it to you some of you have already heard this hopefully you won't um, you can stay awake another five minutes. Um, Augustinianism was battered around. Part of it refuted by the church. Nah, he went too far. Um, but it stayed around a long time. And then it took a new, more polished, um, but the bones were still the same, um, logical sequence. Okay? And it's best remembered by the, well, I don't know, what do, you, what, do you, what do you call it when you have the letters make out a word, but they stand for, what is that called? I don't know, and I don't, what is it? Acronym. Acronym, okay. Anyway, TULIP. TULIP is the best way to describe Augustinianism in its more polished, um, evolved, position okay the problem is it is perfectly logical and it follows um, but it's wrong uh, and it comes to horrible I mean not good ends but number one it'll just give you the, the what the words are tulip tulip T is total depravity okay now you might think that's horrible we believe in total depravity. Everybody believes in total depravity in this sense. But here's where it gets down to the weeds. Um, total depravity can either mean, it's called total depravity extensive, 
total depravity, intensive, extensive means there's no part of the human being and our minds and our wills and our emotions and everything that is not affected by it. That's extensive. Intensive means it is so deep and so you're so bad um, and so sinful that you are unable to even exercise a free will to reach up to God and respond to him. Okay, that's different. So the first kind of total depravity, I think, is biblical. The second kind of total depravity is too extreme. But that's what Augustine taught. Okay, now that necessitated, called for, the you. The you is unconditional election or another term, predestination. You cannot cooperate in your own salvation because you're too wicked. So God must do it entirely for you. And he does it by election or predestination in which he chooses those to be saved. And then there's been fighting for 500 years. Um, well, longer than that. But does he choose those who will be, quote, reprobated, that will be lost? Or does he just not choose them to be saved? Now, the softer way to describe it is that God chooses certain ones to be saved and just doesn't choose the others. But that's a bogus, fake way to deal with it. He, if he chooses out of this congregation here, if he chooses Jim Brooks to be saved and he doesn't choose any of the rest of you, don't try to tell me that he just didn't choose you. He damned you. So it's called double predestination. And, and the current believers of predestination will fight like a Comanche to stay out of that definition, but they can't because you've got God determining that so-and-so is going to go to hell. They're not going to be offered salvation. Okay? Now, so you is unconditional election. Now, this even gets into more weeds. The predestinarians divide up into two groups, especially older. Now, I don't know about today so much, but there are two groups. They're called um, supralapsarians and infralapsarians. Okay? That one you need to memorize and you need to know exactly what that's about. Superlapsarians, um, the word you can recognize there is lapse, fall. Okay, that God made the choice of who would be saved and who would be damned, supralapsaria, prior to the fall, which also means he chose the fall. Now that didn't last real long. I mean, because that's, that's indefensible. Because you have God choosing that Adam and Eve would fall. I mean, that's absurd. But the infralapsarians are the ones that say God did not make a predetermined choice who was going to be saved or lost until after the fall occurred. Then, faced with the issue of a fallen race and Adam and Eve going to pass that down, then 
only after it happened did he choose looking down through the millennia who would be saved and who would be lost. Okay? Now, since God chose who would be saved and who would be lost, um, you will be saved with or without cooperation. It doesn't make a difference. You're going to be saved. And if you, you probably wouldn't want to get saved if you're one of the non-elect. So you wouldn't even, it wouldn't be like you're begging to be saved but you can't be saved because God wouldn't make you want to get saved. So you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be mad you didn't get chosen. Okay. Um, so, now you get into, this is one that chokes people, the L. And to this very day, there's a lot of Calvinists that pull away from being predestinarians because of this particular doctrine. And it's a bad one. The L in TULIP, limited atonement. Okay, now I'm not making this up. This is what it was taught. We said Jim Brooks was chosen to be saved. He's the only one in this room. Okay, and listen, I'm not, I'm not going, this is only slightly <laughs> over the top. You don't like the fact that you didn't get chosen? Get over it. You're all a bunch of sinners. You deserve it in any way. He deserves it. But just to show his great mercy, God saved Jim. The rest of you, don't gripe. You got it coming. That's a real, I like that kind of a God, don't you? Um, but the L is limited atonement. Now this is, again, please, I'm not twisting anything. There's no reason. Jesus Christ did not shed his blood for Tom, for Lori, for Casey, for Philip, because they weren't chosen. Remember, he just spilled the blood of Jesus for somebody that's already chosen to not be saved. So he only died, Jesus died for Jim in this room, nobody else. Now that chokes most people. Uh, that's always been a hard one to get people to swallow. Now, the I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace. So since Jim has been chosen to be saved, he's going to get saved. I don't care if he's in a coma. I don't care if he claims he's an atheist. I don't care. He's going to get saved. And it won't be on his own accord, nor will it even be any grace-aided cooperation. God will, even what might look on the outside, that Jim is moved in his heart and he's sorry for his sins, he doesn't participate in that at all. God made him feel that, do that, confess that, believe that. They even go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Saved by faith, that not a gift of your own, uh, it is of God. What is of God? Grace or faith? They say faith. You don't even, you don't believe. God believes for you and forces you and just, you just believe. Cooperating or not. Okay? And I, weirdly, I mean, again, it makes sense, but it's wrong. The Bible's real clear. What do you do? You repent, and the term for, and then you're born again, 
Okay? Born again, another term for born again is regeneration. So you repent, believe, and you're regenerated. You're brought to life. It's backwards with the predestinarians. You are regenerated. So God, on his own, before repentance, makes you alive. You're, you're born again. And as a result of being born again, then in your spiritual life, you repent of your sins that apparently already got forgiven. It just is, it makes no sense, okay? But you, you're going to get saved. There's no, there's no way in the world you're not going to get saved, okay? So it's irresistible. Finally, the P, perseverance of the saints. There is no way if if God picked Jim before the foundation of the world and Jesus died for him specifically, not for the rest of us, but for him, and God irresistibly brought him to conversion, any way in the world he's going to fall away from, from faith and lose, lose his soul, not a chance in the world. He's going to persevere. Now, here's what you have, and then I, I'll quit. Today, Augustinianism has separated into several branches, some softer, more moderate than others. And there's always been, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me say this. I'll just give you two divisions, kind of big divisions. You've got the, the old, what, what we would still call tulips or five-pointers, okay? Tulips, five. So-and-so is a five-pointer. Um, or you have technically, I don't know, one-pointers. Okay? Here's the problem. Most today, there's more one-pointers than there are five-pointers. But a one-pointer's cut their own foundation out from underneath them. Because here's what they've essentially done. I don't like tea. We're not so totally depraved. And, and there's, there's, you know, God gives us grace so we can all respond to God. I really don't like the you, whosoever will, is a Bible truth. And so all are open to being saved. L, I really don't like because Jesus died for the whole world. I, irresistible, I don't like that because I know people that I know in my own life I resisted and then so forth. Um, but boy, do we love the P. And the P is, you can't ever fall away, is the rough, basically. So I don't like the foundation, and I don't like the walls, but man, do I love that rough. A five-pointer is wrong, but they've sure got more logical sequence for what they believe they have the foundation and the walls and the roof. The foundation being we're so bad off, God has to take it on himself to do it. Uh, don't agree with that, but at least it's more logical and reasonable than just blowing out the walls. But I love that roof, so we're going to keep the roof. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense. Now, that's, that really created a schism in the church in 431, there was a, another one of these councils, and it was held at Ephesus. And 
um, Augustine had died the year before. He died for 430. Um, in 431, the council in Ephesus, and I don't think um, Pelagius was still living. They condemned Pelagius, kicked him out of the church. I don't know, I think they exiled him, which usually, you know, okay, you go to deserts of Arabia or something and don't ever come back. Um, but he was, he was put out, okay? But Pelagianism and um, Augustinianism, those two branches that came out of that um, heresy have never gone away. Most of liberalism today, the vast majority of liberal Protestantism, are Pelagians. Because they believe, as they, we believe in the basic goodness of man. God doesn't, but they do. And that's Pelagian. Pure as can be. Um, and then there's a large segment of Protestantism that believes in some form of Augustinianism, which more recently has become labeled Calvinism. But the, the roots, you know, are back there. And there were a couple of councils that also refuted Augustine. Now, they, they didn't come down hard on him because he was basically right. But they, specifically, they, um, they didn't buy the predestination business. And so they, they cut that out. I mean, they basically said, ah, we're not. And they ended up calling it, the theology ends up call, being called semi-Pelagianism. Okay, um, and some people call it semi-Augustinianism, but it it gives some play to the human will and freedom and the ability to say yes or no to God, and for God to re then respond to that rejection or acceptance with His promises. Okay, so it's probably difficult to really describe what a watershed, continental divide that Pelagian controversy was in its effect even till today. Um, it's, it was maybe one of the biggest. Arius that we looked at was a big one, but this one really has had a lasting effect. Okay, it's 10 after. We got five minutes before the kids let out and mayhem reigns. So, um, Let's go ahead and remember all this. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of pick up with where we begin to begin then to move. Within about 100 years, you're into what's called the papacy, the rise of the pope and the more formal organization. The Roman Empire has collapsed. The only Western institution that had any cohesion at all was the Catholic Church. It filled that void. And then you have the start of what's called the Holy Roman Empire. But Roman Empire, as Rome, was collapsed. Okay, Father in heaven, we pray that we would, again, always learn from past errors and the, the great controversies, really, Lord, even though I know that I can't imagine that controversies are pleasing to you still, they force the church to sharpen their focus and define doctrines and 
dig deep in the scripture to rightly divide the word of God. And so out of, out of the controversies came a lot of clarity. So I thank you that we hopefully can learn from this and also appreciate what we've inherited and what we stand on the shoulders of all the people who've gone 2,000 years before us um, and what they've taught and seen in the scripture. Go with us now, I pray, and keep us safe, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.